Good evening, my name is Maggie Smith, and I'm here with my co-director, Noah Gordon. Noah and I, along with Quinn Giordano and Chris Hemer, make up the Right of Reply core executive team for our fifth season. We are pleased to announce that Sarah Miranda, Celia Bukharia, Michael Walsh, Anna Amblegen, and Isaac Smith have joined our staff for this season. We look forward to introducing them in upcoming episodes as they begin to co-host with us throughout the year. We have a fantastic list of episode topics lined up that we can't wait to research and explore in the upcoming weeks. We would like to take a moment to thank our listeners at home here in Kingston and abroad for helping us get to our fifth season. And as always, we are looking forward to sharing the current issues and debates within international affairs with you. Thank you again. This week's episode dives into the many ongoing debates surrounding water rights and access to fresh water in Canada and abroad. We begin with an intriguing interview with Dr. Eleanor McDonald, an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies here at Queen's University. We then conclude our episode with a discussion between Quinn, Noah, and Chris, who talk about their thoughts and ideas regarding water rights and its place in the future. Coming up is the interview with Dr. Eleanor McDonald. Welcome, Professor McDonald. Thank you. Um, we're talking about water rights today, and just as an open-ended beginning question, what is the importance of water and water rights as a whole? Um, I think everyone, if you think about it at all, people agree that the difference between water and almost everything else is that it's a human need. It's something that um, we, along with many other species on the planet, cannot live without. So questions around how we distribute water, how we treat water, um, access to water are all questions which affect everyone. And um, in that sense, it's not like uh, running shoes or computers or things that you might purchase uh, based on what you want or preferences. It's something that um, we need to survive. And what are the key debates around this uh, issue of water rights? One of them is uh, simply the question of who does water belong to and um, who should have control over it. Um, in our contemporary world, that seems to come down to Will it be corporations or will it be governments? Um, so that's, I guess, that's the big debate around it. Um, we have a little bit of a, a little bit of complacency here in Canada around that because we are blessed with such a large quantity of the Earth's water. Um, you'll read statistics that we have 20% of the world's water, fresh water supply. Um, that's a little bit misleading because. Um, you actually shouldn't look at the whole water supply, you should look at the renewable portion of the water supply. So that part that we can take away without actually diminishing our supply of it. And in that case, what we have is actually 6.5% of the world's water, freshwater supply that's renewable. And um, so it's still a fantastically good amount of water, but it's not as much as we think we have and um, we should also be a little careful because some of the water some of the world's countries have like Brazil was apparently the country with the the best freshwater supply and the water there has been so damaged and degraded that um, they're now suffering from water sh water scarcity water shortages um, there have been rumors of people drilling through their basement floors to try and find wells to mm. access to um, water supplies that are uncontaminated. Mm. So. so how new is this debate on water rights? Um, I think it really picked up in the last uh, couple of decades. I mean, the concerns about the environment are long-standing. You can find reference to them from decades and centuries ago, but really uh, its awareness of the impact of industrialization really took off in the 1960s and 70s with concerns about uh, nuclear pollution, with concerns about um, just general industrial pollution. Uh, up until a certain point, I think people really thought that our water our oceans were a vast sink and you could just dump anything into them and eventually it would get absorbed. Um, in the last 20 or so years, we've really seen people pay more attention to our water supply as in various areas of the world, uh, droughts, um, the effect of damming and diversion, 
um, the effect of industrial pollution becomes more and more obvious. Mm -hmm. It was, I think, in uh, 2010 that the real debate um, at the UN about whether water should be considered a right came mm -hmm. to the table. Canada was unfortunately one of 41 countries that abstained on that, um, reluctant to commit ourselves to whether or not water should be considered a human right. The alternative was that it be considered something that was a service or a good that could be exchanged, that could be owned. And so um, making it a right puts it squarely in the realm of governmental protection. And many of the large industrial countries didn't want to disappoint the corporations who were hoping to make a profit off of water resources. Mm -hmm. And so Canada abstained. More recently, I think when the debate came again, uh, it was unanimously voted upon that water should be considered a right. So what are the key debates in favor of the privatization of water resources? The key debate is uh, the position that's taken in our society uh, and in most um, capitalist societies that capitalism will do a better job of uh, taking care of a resource, that capitalism will um, be more efficient in its uh, use of the resources that it benefits from, and that uh, what, where water is being subsidized, for example, by government provision of water services, um, that we are perhaps squandering this resource. And so free market environmentalists argue that corporations, if they were to own it, if it were privately owned, people would, the corporations who own it would protect it. So what are the, the implications or hazards that might come from privatization of water resources? Well, the, the last, <laughs> that, that second one um, seems strange because what we do know is that corporations' primary interest is profit. Right. And you don't make profit unless you sell. And in fact, in order to continue making profit, you have to sell more and more because we expect in capitalism for profits to be continuously increasing. And so for private... Uh, corporations to own our water supply, um, one of the concerns, and this isn't the only one, but one of the big ones, is that it will lead to actually, they will be pushing consumption of our water. It's already the case that for bottled water, bottled water companies like Pepsi and Coca-Cola are the big ones, they already own 15% of the world's fresh water supply. They push us to buy it. They want us to purchase that water. And conservationists would say, leave the water in the ground. Um, some of the other concerns with private ownership are uh, the big concern of access. Um, if it's sold as a commodity, um, like any other commodity, it's sold at a price and the people who are poorest are the ones who are least likely to have access to it. So we see that um, wherever water is privatized, there's risks that the, the poorest sections of the population are the ones who get the most degraded water polluted water, um, and that often when um, a corporation is allowed to privatize a water supply, they often hike the prices immediately, sometimes quadrupling them. There are places in India where uh, a quarter of the average family income is being spent on water. Um, so there's access, there is uh, increased consumption. Another concern with privatization is that Water systems tend to be monopolies. You only have one water system in a municipality. One corporation or the local government will own the water supply. Right. And what we're seeing is when there is a monopoly, uh, you have uh, a high tendency towards uh, being able to do whatever you want. And the water corporations are, are note, noteworthy or infamous for being among the most corrupt corporations in the world. They're right up there with other extractive industries. They have a terrible reputation for um, cutting corners, for um, uh, bribery, corruption of all kinds. Um, yeah, and then there's democracy. I mean, this is our, our common planet. And uh, to have a handful of corporations and estimates will be that corporations will own 75% of all the water on the earth, all the fresh water. To have them uh, using that water in ways that take it out of democratic control and out of, I mean, this is a public 
interest and there's arguments to be made that it should be political considerations um, that govern what we do with that. So what are the what are the key debates in favor of keeping water resources in public control then after we just discussed some of the the, the hazards of privatization? Well, I think the main one is that last one is that we um, it's it's a challenge to us it's a challenge to us democratically to figure out how to use this resource and because it's such a vital resource it might be the place where people actually do wake up a little bit and say okay how are we going to take care of this and how are we going to distribute it I mean one of the challenges to that is that um, alongside capitalism has been uh, a mistrust of government and corporations feed that mistrust and and um, they don't like to be regulated um, but it's pretty clear that water is a resource around which we're going to need a lot of regulation regulation around use regulation around um, care of it really uh, one of the things that happened under the Harper government in Canada was that um, there's something called the Navigable Waters Act, which protected virtually all, 99% of the lakes and rivers and oceans in Canada, of which there are thousands and thousands, mm -hmm. tens of thousands. Um, the, the Harper government changed that so that the Navigable Waters Act would only cover the oceans and a, a very limited, under 100 uh, rivers and lakes in Canada, which meant that we don't have to now think about any of those things when we do things like do pipeline evaluations and um, other major um, potentially in damaging projects uh, like um, the line nine that's coming right through here we don't they they no longer have federal protections for that so um, we have this is something which i think if people paused and thought about it, they'd say, yeah, we want actually democratic control over access to that resource, care of that resource, potential future uses of that resource. We, we need to build into our democracy ways of thinking about future generations. And corporations are quite short-sighted. Right. Um, they want to make profit now. Governments have also tended to be quite short-sighted. They don't want to tax people. They don't want to be the unpopular government that taxes. Mm -hmm running a municipal water system, making sure that there, that it's up to date, that it can handle the increased climate uh, events, um, floods, droughts, uh, is going to cost money and people are going to have to be willing to invest that money in their local governments. So if we were able to get out of the pressures of uh, quarterly profit expectations for corporations and the electoral chances of politicians, what kind of policy uh, would be best to address this issue that, as you say, is more democratic and more considerate? Well, I think there are a lot of different policies. I don't think there is just going to be one. Um, interestingly, and I, uh, while there is pressure to privatize water, and that pressure is coming from international financial institutions um, like the World Bank has um, made a statement in favor of it. Many cities are actually uh, choosing to remunicipalize their water. The, so 94 cities in France alone, in France alone just last year, decided to remunicipalize their water supplies. And so it's partly because that permits them to create policies around pricing or around care of the water. But water's affected by so many things beyond just who owns it, it's, and governments are gonna need to step in to make decisions about, um, well, I mean, I think a big one right now is fracking, frankly. So fracking uses a tremendous amount of water and forces it at high speed through shale rock in order to get access to natural gas that's trapped down there and it, and when it does that it mixes that water with uh, chemical solutions we don't know what's in them we do know that in many cases there are known carcinogens and not only is the water that is pumped back out with the natural gas 
intensely polluted, but so is the, 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 the risk that all of those pollutants are going to get into our groundwater supply. So, you know, that'd be a policy where I think we, the corporations that are interested in fracking are, um, certainly don't want regulations for it, but uh, there'd be a strong case to be made and some, some jurisdictions are making it that governments are gonna have to step in and just say no to this industry. Right. So you mentioned France re-municipalizing re their, their water resources. And we discussed last week in seminar that Canada is home to 6.5% of the world's renewable water supply and has yet to privatize its water, re, uh, water industries. Why do you think that Canada is reluctant to move towards privatization? Well, I think it's not actually Canada. It's different cities within Canada. Okay. So um, the decision about whether or not to privatize isn't made at the federal level, it's made at the local level. And the corporations are waiting at the gate for any opportunity that they can find. Um, so Hamilton privatized its water back in, I think it was 1995, with all kinds of promises that this would um, bring revenue into the city. There was a kind of prof it was a public-private partnership. Um, there were promises that Hamilton city council would benefit from the profits that would come and there was talk of creating like international centers and you know things that would be revitalize Hamilton's economy it was a disaster it was an unmitigated disaster um, the there was uh, when very often the, the two things come packaged water and wastewater or sewage right. um, and there was a huge sewage backups throughout the city. People's basements were full. There was sewage floating in the Hamilton Harbor. Turned out the company had lied about um, how much money it had made from copper investments, and um, they backed out of their contract and all kinds. Anyway, it just was a disaster. So some of some of it is that looking around, Canadian cities have not actually seen each other benefiting from this. Um, there's, they're not, Canada's lucky because it's not being pressured by international lending organizations um, because we don't go to them. For, right. We're not in the right. position of, of, of many third world countries to have, need to go and get yeah. um, loans. Um, Moncton, however, privatizes water and uh, it seems to be working for now. But I think Canada's, uh, you know, there there was a move in Kingston, I can't remember how long ago, I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago, to privatize the water um, and uh, water garbage um, sewage system here. Um, and citizens reacted and said, no, this isn't something that we want. And I think on the whole in Canada, cities have been, with some big exceptions, uh, benefiting from investments that were made in the 1930s, 40s, 50s in building good infrastructure. The, the challenge is to keep maintaining that infrastructure in an anti-tax environment. And so um, it would just take a, a very right-wing council in many cities that was persuaded by a corporation um, to sell off its resources, its water um, management system, rather than to reinvest, you know, the, the city might say, "This is this is a this is a we can we can declare to our citizens that we're reducing their tax bill. We can hand over this resource to a private corporation, and then we're good." Right. Um, so, is the issue of water rights a critical issue in Canada right now? And if not, do you see it becoming that? kind of a critical issue soon? It's absolutely a critical issue in many ways. Um, we are making decisions right now that will affect our future. The fracking decision is one of them. It is a critical issue that <clears throat> in something like 75% of our Indigenous communities there is no access to safe water. And so that's, you know, the reasons for that have to do with um, damming and diversion projects in many cases. Um, they have to do with water licensing rights that have been given. So there was, um, um, you know, there's a question of who actually has access. And in some cases, there's built in hierarchy of access where corporations are given access before, uh, for instance, Alberta, um, some of the um, um, reserve lands. 
so it's it's absolutely important in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that global warming is also going to challenge our water supply like anyone else. Privatization of water here, you can bet that corporations, even if they can't sell the idea of um, transforming our cities into privately owned water management systems, um, they will be wanting to pump water to those areas of the states where aquifers are being depleted. We all know, for example, that California had um, severe water restrictions uh, last year because of the drought, and we're expecting with climate change that there will be more and more areas that are suffering more and more drought. And they'll look to the north and they'll say, you have the water and we should have access to it. And uh, if it's a commodity, then it's open to be traded. For example, in NAFTA, we are committed to not giving preferential treatment to Canadians in terms of our resources that are commodities. We are required under NAFTA, as well as under any other trade agreement, to uh, treat other countries and other corporations uh, located in other countries equally. So if it's a right, and we're protecting it as a right, we um, we have we are entitled to um, put restrictions on how it's used. But the moment we let it slip into becoming treated as a commodity that can be traded, we are then exposing it to all of those international forces. So moving forward, then, um, like ba- bearing that in mind that. But you said like people are going to start looking to the north in time that we should be a little bit more proactive right now. What do you think the best decision uh, for Canada uh, for its water resources should be right now? Wow. Um, big question. Big question. Um, the two the two issues that I mentioned, I think we have uh, we have to take a look at uh, the water the reasons why water on um, Indigenous lands has been so degraded and we need to address that. I think um, we need to be, we need to reinstitute the Navigable Waters Act in a way that protects all of Canadian water, uh, navigable waters. And I think we need to take a closer look at the potential damage that can be done to our aquifers and our groundwater supply, which is very, very fragile, and um, and uh, be prepared to step in and regulate more. And I think that that may mean banning fracking, as unpopular a decision as that would be in some quarters. Yeah. So where would you say that the narrative is on this topic right now? Has it been driven primarily by people who are pro-privatization or people who tend to sympathize with the idea of, of water as a right? I don't know the answer to that, actually. I think that um, the as there has developed a public discourse in favor of maintaining water as a right, it has also been the case that corporations have developed their own water NGOs and have tried to influence the debate in favor of privatization. Um, in many cases, what they're looking for is kind of uh, a middle-of-the-road solution that would still favor privatization. So, for example, if you say access is a concern, they say, okay, well, we'll set aside a little bit of water, enough, maybe 25 litres, you know, a day, which should be plenty, um, to cover the poor, and then everybody else should pay market price. And it's and and so they're trying to shift it back towards on an access front towards that. Um, if I say, oh, well, I'm concerned about like uh, corruption, then they um, they would take steps to um, greenwash and bluewash their corporations uh, to make sure that they get re- reputations for making investments in green energy, um, uh, in research and development into uh, safer ways to do damming and diversion projects. Um, and the blue washing refers to making sure that they get a better reputation on a human rights front. Um, if I say, um, you know, I'm concerned about the maximization of consumption, they may accept that there could be internationally limits on that. Um, if I say reduce democracy, they might say, well, let's go towards a public-private partnership. So there's still some democratic involvement. So there, there would be 
answers or responses to each of those things, mm -hmm. I do think that uh, we don't actually need corporations in order to uh, in order to intervene here. Um, but they, of course, are extremely interested in uh, having control of a good, which is a need, that literally every single person would need mm -hmm. on the planet. Right. So for them to walk away from that is almost inconceivable. So if you ask where the discourse is going, my guess is that uh, there will be heightened debates about this uh, in future. Yeah. And in my opinion, in Ontario anyways, you look around, you see, you see water everywhere. You turn on the tap, water's there. So we don't really have it on the forefront of mind. We don't have the drought. We don't have those issues going on. Um, we're not living with the, the troubles to access of water um, on some of the native reserves here. So my question is then how do you, how do you get civil society involved? How do you engage civil society to become more aware of this and take it more seriously when it's not on the forefront of their minds right now? I'm not sure. I know that <clears throat> although we feel pretty good about our water supply, I think um, it it is possible for people to imagine that how they might feel if they didn't have, as soon as you have a boil water advisory, even once in a community, right. for any reason, it, um, it creates a sense of alarm. Um, same as if you have an energy crisis in a community and a, a lack of power. The power goes out for one day and we're we're astonished at how dependent we are. Walkerton took place in 2000 where the municipal water supply um, was uh, polluted and people are still suffering from the effects of that and people died, you know, from um, a lack of care of the water system. So for a little while there can be an alarm about that. I would like to think that people don't actually have to have a crisis staring them down the face uh, in, you know, staring them in the mm -hmm. eyes in order to change their views. I think it is important that people talk about this. Um, I think there are, however, uh, many obstacles to that discussion. One of those obstacles is the f concern people have about increased taxes and an anti-government feeling that if you look around is still quite common, less common in Canada than in the United States, but still quite common. And then there is a kind of faith that corporations are generally benign until they're proven otherwise, you know. And so nobody wants to say to a corporation that we don't trust you. Um, and yet, uh, you know, you see this around pipeline spills, you see this around um, human rights abuses and and um, around v various, you know, there will be a corruption case like the infamous Enron case um, or the, the the information that came out around the housing bubble and the financial institutions that were complacent or actually participated in that and then people wake up for a little bit and then the general view is that that was just a few bad apples right. and, and backing off. But I do think Canada has a tradition of um, regulation of corporations, and while that plays out different ways in the political system here, there are, um, you know, there's left-right debates, but at least there is some healthy um, common view that there should be at least be some regulation, and so I think working with that. You talked about the state of the discourse on this subject. Is there something that has been excluded from general conversations about water rights or our understanding of the environment uh, that you think should be included or should uh, get more attention? Hmm. Yes, I think there's a couple more things, and I think they're just uh, they're th the things that we don't actually see. So um, uh, NASA satellites in June 2015, a study from the NASA satellites show that over half of the world's largest aquifers are being depleted. And I took that from a recent publication that was um, by Maude Barlow and the Council of Canadians has been uh, deeply interested in the water issues for a while. And she goes on to say that 21 of the world's 37 largest aquifers 
in locations from India to China to the United States to France have passed their sustainability tipping points. In other words, over half, two-thirds really, of the, of the largest aquifers in the world are being drained at a rate larger than they can be um, uh, restored. And we don't see the aquifers. We don't see our groundwater. We don't see um, what's going on in those areas. But this should, this new information should be made available people. We should uh, try to get our minds around what we can be doing to reduce our use and to protect what's there. And really protecting what's there means to the degree that it's possible, leave water where it is. Like don't divert it, don't dam it, don't take it out of the ground to use it unnecessarily by injecting millions and millions of gallons of it into the ground to, to frack out again. Um, and and make the regulations that are deemed to be necessary. The only other thing that I might add to that is that um, there have been there has been a, a huge debate about um, globalization, and uh, part of that debate has been uh, our government assuming that the right way to go about globalization is uh, to create trade deals that make globalization possible and exciting for corporations. They don't necessarily increase globalization in terms of um, people's ability to move across borders if you're a refugee or, you know, but, but globalization in terms of joining onto the latest, this, the, the European uh, uh, trade agreement, Canadian-European trade agreement, or the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, or the trans-Pacific trade partnership, or um, NAFTA, and all of these contain this investor state um, settlement dispute mechanism that allows for uh, corporations to challenge government regulations, to say governments, not just for other governments to say, we think you're Canada, you are not treating our country, whatever it is, Belgium properly, but for corporations in those countries to challenge our rules. And given um, what we've been talking about in terms of water, I think we need to go back and take a look at whether or not this is how globalization should take place. And there are there are other approaches we could take that would actually, to globalization, that would protect local economies and local watersheds. And I think that's where we should be going. Mm -hmm. So this subject, um, in many ways, can become very depressing. And uh, it's kind of something that just influences people to disengage because they feel that it's hopeless or that they couldn't possibly make a difference because of the sheer size and scale of uh, water uh, and, and uh, international resources. Uh, is there any kind of optimism that could be injected into this debate? Is there something that we can be very inspired by in this debate? Well, I think um, we can be optimistic that there is a debate. We can be optimistic that there are activists mm -hmm. and that there are, um, uh, you know, we see in the rise, for example, of indigenous activism, uh, a huge concern with water issues. And um, I think uh, we should respect the positions that um, indigenous peoples are making in uh, in their re visioning of what the planet should look like and um, and then I think the fact that there has been at the level of the UN some commitment in this case now a unanimous commitment to water as a human right that does give me hope thank you very much you're welcome thank you that was Eleanor McDonald associate professor at Queen's University we go now to a discussion on the interview that you just heard. Well, I think um, my biggest question about about the topic for this week uh, had to do a lot with what Eleanor McDonald spoke of um, at the very end of the interview regarding um, mobilization of civil society and how people should react. Uh, for me, uh, the discussion on the privatization or keeping keeping water resources, especially in Canada, public um, was was really interesting, but. To bridge the gap between actually doing something or like the actual decisions in theory was um, was something that was really important for me, and I'm really glad that she touched on um, what, when I asked her how do you how do you think this issue is going to move forward in the future mm -hmm. in Canada, and how do you get someone from 
let's say Queen's University or someone who living in Ontario who doesn't see um, environmental crises or water resource crises to to care and to do something and she well Eleanor basically said um, that it's crises Mm-hmm. Crises make people care, and when bad things happen, that's when people start getting serious. Yeah. So, at what point does, uh, or what, at what point are people going to start caring without having a crisis? How do you get people to, how do you mobilize people um, to start being advocates for the environment before it gets to that point? And mm-hmm. I think that was really that was really important because, like she said, it's really sad to think that um, that might be the only thing that that really. Um, that gets people interested yeah. or serious about it. What do you guys think about that? Well, I, I agree. I, I think that it really does take a crisis in a lot of situations. And uh, unfortunately, people considered this to be a crisis, I feel, at the time of um, when in, uh, An Inconvenient Truth was released. Uh, this was presented to people as a kind of doomsday scenario right. that people very willingly embraced um, and were, you know, very, very... Uh, it was a kind of a, a, a moment of terror where people were thinking that this is truly the end and, mm-hmm. and we are going to be facing catastrophe in the very near future. Uh, and ever since then, there was kind of a gradual return to the comfort of daily routines and the right. way things have always been and kind of, you know. Because you're not seeing it. Yeah, is it, yeah. it didn't hit people right away. And maybe maybe almost the, the, the crisis of it was amped up so much that people expected more. Right. Uh, and then the fact that you know the whole world didn't end within five years yeah. was was yeah, yeah was disappointing was evidence that oh it can't really be that bad yeah um, so I think that it's not affecting me yet yeah or yeah now it, it's, in the present it's interesting how people very easily will return to old routines unless they have that crisis I think it becomes a crying wolf thing like this movie came out and it said this would happen and it didn't happen exactly that way mm-hmm. so what else is not true what else is a lie that's been perpetuated by yeah know, how much longer can we put yeah. off exactly. instigating change um like how long can i turn a blind eye to this until i actually mm-hmm. have to do something about it yeah and i feel like that's probably a lot of the way that people think right it's like oh you know what put that on the back burner mm-hmm. for right now because we don't i i don't see any effects of everything yeah it's getting it's getting a little warmer mm-hmm. or yeah maybe um queens doesn't have bottled water because um we're against it but like so what sort yeah. of thing it's like it was kind of like, you know, unless, you know, the movie The Day the day After Tomorrow, unless we were seeing that happen, right. then it can't really be a crisis. Or, yeah. you know, and then it's it, too late. Yeah. Or, or then if we're, you know, if there's still uh, snow in the wintertime, well, then that must be evidence that this mm-hmm. is not really kicking in as seriously as it was supposed to, so we can't accept the theory. And I think when we talked about how these topics can be so depressing and make us so downtrodden... And we ended on the note of optimism. That's so important because when you watch a film like The Day After Tomorrow, yeah, you get really down and you tend to bury your head in the sand and think, you know what, climate change, sure, it's happening, but I'm really scared if it happens. And I look outside and maybe it's not happening, so I'm yeah. not going to be afraid of it right now. Yeah, you get to kind of just come out of the movie like waking up from a nightmare and saying, oh, it was just a dream, you know? Yeah. But as we know that there's, there's uh, climate change change science is suggests to us that this is more than just a dream this right. is more than just a story to scare people into changing uh certain unethical or or uh, polluting habits of right. capitalism you know this is actually something that will affect us right eventually and i think i think um on that note um as a whole we see this strange response um to water resources in ontario we have Nestle going to Guelph and they outbid Guelph on on one of their wells and there's uproar right Guelph goes insane mm-hmm. and rightfully so and we we discuss about it in class and Rick Mercer does a rant on it and it's on the front page for a few days and it's discussed and then it's gone and then it's gone it's like Nestle won and it's sort of over for us, maybe not for Guelph, mm-hmm. but I was discussing with some with some of my friends, you know, uh, like the, the the topic this week is is water rights. Well, well, okay, why? Well, okay, did you hear about what happened in Guelph? Oh, well, they can't do that. Well, they did. Yeah, they did, and you didn't even hear about it. And mm-hmm. we live in Kingston. You don't live on the opposite side of the world. It happened in Guelph. It happened four hours away. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's such a varied response, right? People care, but they don't know what to do. Exactly. They don't know what to do. They they don't know how to respond. How do we go up against Nestle, or how does 
a community of people come together and say no and Eleanor yeah. McDonald talked about how mm-hmm. um, they um, that one the one country um, I forget which Bolivia. country was oblivion they um, they eventually after the the company that was working there um, failed miserably to privatize then they they eventually said no so how does a country like Bolivia say say no mm-hmm. when a country much more powerful in lots of ways Canada or a little a little um, small city I, I think I think the difference was that in Bolivia you had conditions of severe drought and right such a um, an interesting example of, of, a, of a corporation coming in and saying well you cannot take the rainwater right you know? and that was maybe so a severity th- thing yeah it was a tipping point it was saying like this this just seemed like such a strange case right that um, you know it was more shocking to people I guess right no you made the point about what can we do? And I think as a generation, we have become so addicted to instant gratification that mm-hmm. when there's a community event to plant a tree and you go plant a tree and think that you're going to you know, combat climate change and that tree goes in the ground and you've done your part to you know, buy a second car. Yeah, or sign a petition. Yeah. yeah, there's not the tangible results yeah. like there are with other initiatives. Right. Climate change, we've taken the earth to its absolute tipping point and some people think we've already surpassed that. Mm-hmm. And it's now a game of, of trying to get back off that cliff. It's yeah. Right. I think that it's also uh, a question of kind of social association, too, that some people may uh, believe that these issues are important, but they don't really know how to voice them because they're not really sure where that paints them politically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's certain stigmas about supporting certain causes, um, and some of the people perhaps that advocate for those causes don't seem to appeal to the mainstream lifestyle of a lot of Canadians. Right. You know, in the course that we're taking, Noah, where we're reading about deep environmentalism or deep, deep ecology, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the kind of lifestyle that's being advocated there would do wonders to combat yeah. environmental degradation, but it would mean a fundamental reshaping right. of uh, our daily lives. Yeah. And people just don't want to be associated with that no. without being called, you know, loons. Yeah. Yeah. The scout is a brave role. Yeah. Yeah. So do we want to talk about um, a little bit about what Eleanor was speaking about in the privatization and the public debate? Yeah, feel free. Um, okay, well, what do you guys think in general? What? Where do you think, do you see Canada? Obviously, um, Eleanor said she doesn't know uh, which direction it's going, but do you? What, what are the benefits and what are the drawbacks? What do you think should be done? Well, I think when we have what about 20% of the world's fresh water supply in Canada right we have a, not a complete monopoly but a huge stake in this and I think that when you look at treaties like NAFTA or you know the TPP possibly going through people are going to start looking to us for water and I think mm-hmm. that now is the time before it's too late like we keep talking about to really stake out what we're going to do with this water how we're going to protect it whether that's mm-hmm. publicly or privately whether or not it's federally or provincially Municipally, mm-hmm. well, with within the um, the framework of the kind of privatization that seems to be where this is all going, um, I feel like you know you talked about innovating out of crisis when we were discussing this before. Right. Um, I feel like the market solution uh, that would be provided um, has yet to be invented. You know because. Uh, as as uh, Professor McDonald pointed out, when you privatize, you create monopolies of control mm-hmm. over the water. Um, and we know that the, the way that market solutions usually develop are not through conditions of monopoly or mm-hmm. oligopoly. Like, you need to have competition, competition. You need to, and that's, that's where you will have innovation. Right. And I don't think we've found a way to get that into uh, the, the, uh, these privatization solutions for water mm-hmm. rights. So um, I think that w- if that can happen, then that would be a way forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, or maybe I'm simply not understanding it well enough, but I think in lieu of that kind of innovation, mm-hmm. I don't think that the current trend toward privatization will right. produce the kind of outcomes that we want. It is really difficult to wrap your head around when you talk about privatization of water as a resource itself. Like yeah. when you think about privatization of a hospital or of a prison, mm-hmm. it just seems so much more easier to think of in terms of, you know, accessibility, mm-hmm. maybe efficiency, and you can see like, okay, competition, maybe you get wait times lower at, at the ER, and you can see some some of the benefits, but then you talk about water resource, which has been um, on 
on and off the table about being um, a human right, mm-hmm. as Eleanor discussed. And it just seems like there's something inherently different about talking about water um, in the in the private realm because it just vests something so vital mm-hmm. into right. someone. There's something so human about yeah, it. There, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, the This human element that is sort of missing from... Um, some other debates in privatization, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and I think it. Uh, and like Eleanor said, you the they the the corporations they're going to be in per, in pursuit of profit primarily, mm-hmm. obviously with that that's what comes with privatization, but also pushing for consumption, which I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. uh, because we don't really look at it that way. It's like they're pushing for consumption, which is counterintuitive to what a lot of the people, a lot of advocates for tighter water restrictions would want, mm-hmm. right? And maybe ever, not a lot of people see it that way. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. And when you have an aquifer that's unregulated, you have a party going on and everyone wants to get their, their fill. So when you have right. basically implant themselves into a situation and they have better pumps, better hoses, mm-hmm. you better believe that they're going to be getting as much of as they can. Right. Right. So I wonder, how did you learn about water rights and the issue of water rights? Because you know, we talk about you know trying to improve awareness of this issue. Right. Um, but in your case, uh, what was it that drew you in? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, so when when I was younger, we I I would leave the tap on when I brushed my teeth, and my dad would always walk by and say World War Three. Really. And I never <laughs> understood what that meant. He just shut the tap off and say World War Three. And then some, and now when my friends, uh, and then as I got older, people would leave the tap on. I'd shut off and say World War Three, and they're like, "What do you mean?" So then I finally asked my father, "Why are why do you say World Wait, War Three? You III? would say it without knowing. Yeah, I would just like I would just you know like tacitly consent to the <laughs> World War Three notion. So okay. I would I would just say it, and like I was young enough to like be willfully blind. Yeah, you know. So then, but I'm maybe I was seven. And I finally get curious. My dad says, you know, my a teacher back in his elementary school said, World War Three will be over fresh water. Mark wow. my words. Wow. And way back then in his elementary school, and now. Um, and he says, don't waste the water, you know? And I said, okay, like I'll turn off the top when I brush my teeth. That's a so, pretty big responsibility to put as on a, a as, as a seven year old. So I think that is when I first became um, like in tune with it. Right. In tune with it. So it was kind of like a little ground level. But then obviously being, uh, being a political science major at Queens helps as well. You become a little bit more aware of issues I want around water rights, and I live really close to um, a native reserve in Peterborough, Hiawatha, yeah. and so it's sort of always been on the forefront of uh, of their um, their mandates, mm-hmm. and um, I've always caught wind of it uh, being so close. So I think that that for me, and that's really circumstantial. Yeah, you know that's it's very pocketed sort of one-off events that have yeah. really um, struck my interest yeah. in water rights. So it really hasn't come from some sort of mainstream, tangible, you know, entity that that is saying, you know what, Noah, you should smarten up and and listen, read something about Nestle mm. or, you know, what is your government doing? What are they not doing? Mm. Because I didn't know anything that uh, Professor McDonald was talking about with the Harper government with uh, navigable, yeah, with the navigable, yeah. yeah, not a thing. Mm. Uh, what was the case that you mentioned, Chris? Uh, yeah, I think what struck me most was um, when we were doing the research, and we found the numbers of, of fresh water being in Canada, twenty percent of the world's stake. That's huge. But then, what struck me more was the percentage of Canadians who don't have access to that water. Right. You look at far north reserves, and even um, Shoal Lake Forty is usually the one that's talked about most. They sit right next to the fresh water source for huge amount of the province of Manitoba and they're sitting right there and they can't access it. They've been on a boil water advisory for I don't even know how long now but so long that it just seems ridiculous that they're right next to this thing that's so tangible to them but it's it's just not hmm. it's not there. Hmm. And that illustrates the kind of inequality that becomes associated with this issue. Right, right. and then you wonder is what this look like on the global yeah. scale? You know, mm-hmm. Who's going to become Shoal Lake 40 in the future? Right. right. And what about you? Well, I, I don't really know. I think that uh, 
this was always something that was kind of uh, just loosely associated with dialogues on environmental justice mm -hmm. or environmental It's sort of issues. just a catch-all. It's in there. Yeah, it's just included, you know, and uh, little by little you learn a little bit more and right. uh, start to think about it. Um, World War Three, though. World War Three. That's very interesting. Do you believe it? I think it's really interesting because when push, when push comes to shove and we have all the water, yeah. you know, it really makes you think. Like, I haven't really, you know, done my research to see if anyone's really advocating for, for a push that says we need water right now. But just like Professor McDonald said, maybe in the face of crisis, like what, what, what are people willing to do for water? Right. I think it's really interesting. So that, that little tidbit that my dad said to me when I was five, seven, you know, mm -hmm. 17, don't have a long shower. Don't, don't wash the car. Don't yeah. put the hose in the pool. World War three. It all just resonates. And who knows? Maybe it's a prophecy. Canada holds one-fifth of the world's fresh water, thus making Canada an extremely resource-rich country. But this can also mean that Canada could face the resource curse that some other resource-rich countries endure, such as the problems that capitalism and oil have brought Nigeria. We hope that our discussion with Dr. McDonald and our Right of Reply team have left you with perspectives and ongoing thoughts to ponder in regard to water rights and the commodification of water. We leave you tonight with a clip from a rant by Rick Mercer from the Mercer Report, which aired on October 11, 2016. Mercer discusses water, Nestle, and Canada. Recently, a small township in Ontario by the name of Centre Wellington tried to buy a well because as a growing municipality, they wanted access to clean, safe drinking water into the future. Now, why anyone would be worried about such a thing, I have no idea. But hey, it's a free country. Anyway, long story short, it didn't work out. They didn't get their well. They didn't get their well because they were outbid by Nestle, a giant multinational. And now Nestle can suck all the water they want out of the well and put it in little plastic bottles and sell it to people who need the water in order to live. Now, let's be clear. Companies like Nestle, they can't just take water for free. No, this is a great natural resource that belongs to we, the people. They have to pay for the privilege. How much do they pay? Well, they pay $3.71 for every million liters of water they take. I'm just going to say that again because you might be thinking, well, that can't be right. They pay $3.71 for every million liters of water they take. The amount of water these companies suck out of Canada every single day is staggering. We are talking trillions of liters of water every day. These are numbers you can't even begin to get your head around unless you're on the spectrum. Canada is one of the greatest countries on earth. We have one-fifth of the world's fresh water supply. Every Canadian should have access to clean water out of a tap or a hose. But the multinationals, they should pay through the nose. Let's tell Nestle and the entire industry we may be a free country, our water is not.